Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. We've had the absolute privilege of chatting with some amazing Canadian as well as international guests over the past year. While the topics have been broad in range, whether clinical, social, or political, our aims for the podcast continue to remain the same. We hope to inspire discussion, creativity, scholarly research, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy our second season as we continue to highlight some incredible guests, deliver detailed masterclass sessions on a myriad of clinical topics, and introduce some fresh new features such as debate and companion formats. We hope you relish the podcast as much as we do. In this episode, we were joined by surgical oncologist Dr. Carolyn Nesson. Dr. Nesson works at the Ottawa General Hospital and gave us a master class on melanoma. We talk about an initial approach to melanoma, staging, immunotherapy, and even get a walkthrough of how Dr. Nesson does her groin dissections. For some of our listeners maybe who don't know you uh, as well yet, can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what your training pathway was and what sort of led you to Ottawa? Sure. Um... I'm originally from Montreal and born and raised. And uh, I actually did my bachelor's degree at McGill in occupational therapy. So I was actually an occupational therapist first before I was a doctor. I worked as an OT for about two years in New York City. Um, And then while I was working, I was in the Bronx and in Harlem working with uh, in pediatrics with kids that had autism, as well as developmental delays. And the more I worked with them, the more I realized I wanted to do medicine. So I applied while I was in New York, got accepted to the University of Montreal, and came back home. So I did my medical school and general surgery residency at the University of Montreal, as well as a master's degree. And then I did my fellowship in surgical oncology at the University of Toronto. And as I was doing surgical oncology in Toronto, I kind of had this love for soft tissue tumors. Um, Anything in the soft tissue I liked. So that included soft tissue sarcoma and melanoma. And so I wanted to do a little bit more uh, in that field. And so I ended up going to the Peter McCallum Cancer Center in Melbourne, Australia where I did an additional uh, six months doing only melanoma and soft tissue sarcoma. And when I came back from Australia, there were, you know, I basically do what I did what everybody else does. You just put your application out there and call around and email people. And I eventually connected with Rebecca Auer at the Ottawa hospital and told her what I wanted to do and what I was interested in. And she's like, wow, right place, right time. We exactly need a sarcoma melanoma surgeon right now. And I was like, perfect. And so I got the job since then it's been morphed into additional um, cancers. So I also treat gastric cancer and uh, neuroendocrine tumor. Um, And I do a little bit of carcinomatosis um, evaluation. We don't do high back surgery, but we do carcinomatosis evaluation. So that's a little bit about me. 
Uh, that's a that's a really great story. You know, you would have had some obviously great mentors in Toronto. Probably Carol Swallow comes to mind yes. amongst others. And then, is, yeah. you know, doing melanoma in Australia is probably like, you know, hitting the Mecca. <laughs> I, it is. It is. I mean, I picked Australia for a reason. Uh, it's the number one cancer in Australia because there's like patchy holes in their ozone layer. Um, and in our we would do the thin melanoma clinic on Thursday afternoons. And so no melanoma thicker than a millimeter could come to that clinic. And you would just do their wide locals right there and then when they would come. And then we would do the regular melanoma clinic all day Friday. And uh, it's pretty impressive. First two hours of the day is tumor board with, you know, 60 people in the room. Uh, and then you do the combined multidisciplinary mel melanoma clinic. So you take the entire uh, unit of that clinic and there's medical oncology, radiation oncology, plastic surgery, ENT, surgical oncology, dermatology and nurses. And you all have side-by-side -side clinics. We would see about 150 people in that one morning. <laughs> we'd be done by 1.30 p.m. having seen about 100 people and what was really cool is if you were doing a skin check and you thought a spot looked funny well you just go get the dermatologist and they come with their fancy dermatoscope and they say no that's fine go home or yeah that's bad get back to go to the back room and then the plastic surgery residents were like doing all the biopsies and uh, it was a really well-oiled machine and then my favorite part of the day was uh after clinic, we would go to the pub, which was two doors down, and everybody would go, and it was always a nice blast. So a wonderful experience, loved it immensely, learned a lot, and really got to really understand melanoma. There's something to be said about just going somewhere where they just do something day in, day out, and they have a complete, uh, well-oiled kind of machinery and setup to, to do something such high volume uh, like that. Um, so let's uh, leverage your your melanoma expertise and uh, and dive right into the topic of melanoma. And I can say firsthand that this is something that lots of trainees struggle with, because um, because mainly because I think so much of it has changed in the last little while. And uh, and depending on sort of your rotation or where you train, you may or may not be exposed to a lot of this um, during training. So um, it's awesome that we can have you on the podcast and and let's dive right in. So. Let's, uh, I'll give you a scenario. So if you have a 50 year old female who presents to your clinic with a new skin lesion that's been getting bigger and they say, the, the GP says, you know, is this query melanoma? How do you approach that patient that comes to you in clinic? <laughs> so to be honest, as a surgical oncology, I usually get them once the diagnosis is made. But um, <laughs> if I did get a lesion like that, uh, you know, I always tell family doctors that the most important indicator that it is a melanoma is that the patient noticed it. Um, because unfortunately, ABCDE, which we all learn and practice, doesn't always apply, especially in nodular melanoma, where they're round and regular and raised and bluish in tinge and not necessarily so black, or they can be very pink and purpley. So I think, um, you know, if a patient is concerned about a lesion and it obviously does not look like a seboric keratosis because the majority of the time it's seboric keratosis, if it truly does look abnormal, then you just biopsy it. 
I don't think there's any harm in biopsying lesions that people are worried about. Just take a piece how to decide what kind of biopsy. So the standard of care or the best kind of biopsy is an excisional biopsy where you remove the entire tumor with a very minimal, minimal margin. You're not doing a wide local excision. You're just taking off the lesion to assess it, to know what to do as a next step. When lesions are, I'd say about a centimeter and a half or less, you can take them off. If they are larger than that, um, you don't wanna be doing large excisions in the clinic because uh, that could affect your lymphatic drainage and mapping for potential sentinel node. So when the tumor is too large, then a punch biopsy is a pretty surefire way to get a diagnosis. So uh, let's say like, you, you know, I'm sure you must occasionally get sent patients that have had, for example, a shave biopsy or something like that. How do you, <laughs> how do you approach that scenario? Because it, obviously it, it, changes uh like it doesn't give you the information that you really need yeah um so that's true i think it depends who did the shave i'll be honest if you if you go to australia in fact they do do a type of shave biopsy called saucerization and really it's only because dermatologists know how to do them and our dermatologists actually do know how to do quite successive what they call a deep shave where they can still get to the subcutaneous fat, um, in which case it's not dangerous. Uh, and you can still get the entire information on the lesion. I think we don't teach that to general surgeons because um, we had never learned how to do this deep shave. And so for us, it's much safer and much more reliable to do a punch in a larger lesion. That being said, you know, there's a big difference when the deep margin is positive and you look at the patient and you see quite significant residual disease left over versus having a deep positive margin. But when you look at the patient's skin, all you see is a scar. If margins are positive and all you see is a scar, the likelihood of residual disease is extremely low. And our group just is looking at this and doing a paper, but it is less than 20% chance that there's actually residual disease. And so that, that thickness is probably quite accurate. It's very different if you have a positive deep margin on a shave, but there's obvious residual disease. But I would argue in a thicker melanoma, so let's say they told me it's a two millimeter and your deep margin is positive, kind of doesn't really change my management because that's getting a two centimeter margin and a sentinel node. Where it gets a bit more tricky is when the deep margin is positive, but they tell me it's 0.5 millimeters. So in thin melanoma, this is very important. And uh, I do talk at grand rounds of plastic, in plastic surgery rounds, especially because this is a very, very important concept. If the pathology comes back in situ or a thin melanoma, like a 0.5 millimeter, but, but, but the deep margin is positive. And when you look at the patient, you see obvious residual disease. It's much better to try to excise the entire lesion to really get the the full assessment of the lesion. Because unfortunately what can happen is you treat it like a thin melanoma, 
you do the one centimeter margin. And if you're in a certain location where it's tricky to close it, all of a sudden it's being closed with a rotation flap or a keystone flap or some fancy thing. And then lo and behold, the final pathology says it's a three millimeter melanoma. And now they ask for sentinel node biopsy. And at that point it's too late. You can't do a sentinel node after a rotation flap. Um, the lymphatic drainage has been too uh, manipulated and moved around that you won't be able to identify the correct node. So the concept of, well, I did a lymphocentigraphy and I can find a node. Of course you can find a node. Any area of skin will map to a lymph node. It just happens to not be the right sentinel node. You really want the node that was close to the original melanoma. So I think deep positive margins in thin melanoma has a definitely different approach than a deep positive margin in a thicker melanoma where it really doesn't change your management at all. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Just to back up again for a second, um, where do risk factors, you know, they always teach us these classic risk factors for melanoma <laughs> like this, you know, pale skin, red hair. Does that really even matter for you um, as a sort of as a surgical oncologist or someone who's seeing a lot of melanoma patients? I mean, it doesn't change anything in how we treat patients. I think it is important in terms of prevention. I think it would be nice if we had larger campaigns to explain the risk factors of melanoma and to improve prevention. Uh, because, you know, I don't think people are fully aware that if they're redheaded, blonde haired, blue eyed, pale skin are at higher risk. They often seem quite surprised when I tell them that. So we think that's intuitive and that of course, but it's not always so intuitive. Um, I've also had some, you know, African-American patients and Mediterranean patients come with melanoma and they tell me, well, how is that possible? I have dark skin. So I think, you know, there does need to be some awareness of the risk factors and really it is exposure to the sun. Um, it's, uh, and who we're going to impact on the most are, are younger children. You know, you it takes decades for a mutation to turn into a cancer. So really when patients tell me at the age of 50, but I wear sunscreen every day and I say, well, it's not about what you did in the last five years. It's what did you do as a child? And did you get sun blistering sunburns as a child and they go oh well yeah because back then we didn't put anything on and it's like well that's what caused the mutation so the risk factor is uv light um, it is sun blistering type sunburns um, and so protection from the sun is is very important uh, in australia they have this campaign called the slip slap slop campaign and you know, everybody's aware of it. And it basically means just wear sunscreen every day, every morning when you go outside. And uh, we definitely don't have the rates of melanoma and as other parts of the world, because we are a colder climate, but we still get a significant share of melanoma in Canada. And I do think awareness of risk factors is important. There's never been any evidence that skin screening for the general population would actually prevent to melanoma. And that's where we have a bit of a bug. But we are starting to study, are there certain populations that should get skin screening on a regular basis from their family physician? And that's being actually studied in Calgary with a, a really uh, good group. But it'll take years before we get the answer to that study. But 
a very important one. Um, the other thing that you know everybody always talks about, and I think sometimes the significance of which uh, didn't really dawn on me until I was studying for the Royal College exam in R5 was sort of the morphologic subtypes. Can you just briefly go over what those morphologic subtypes are in melanoma and, and why is it why it's important to really know what those are? So they are important. Um, the most common is superficial spreading, and it's the one that has the best prognosis. And why that's important is because superficial spreadings are the ones that have that classic appearance. A, B, C, D, E. They're asymmetrical. Their borders are irregular. Uh, they've got multiple colors in them. They evolve over time and they have a diameter of greater than six millimeters. So superficial spreading is the most common with the best prognosis. And the reason it's the best prognosis is because it tends to grow in a lateral fashion as opposed to in a vertical deep fashion, which is more dangerous. Um, the other reason why it's so important is that not all superficial spreadings are de novo. So the whole concept of a polyp that, you know, is an adenoma and then the adenoma turns into a cancer. Well, we have that in melanoma too, and superficial spreading is that kind um, in the sense that it could start as a, just a regular nevi, and then it becomes a dysplastic nevi, and then that goes into melanoma in situ, and then that turns into superficial spreading uh, melanoma. And about 25% of superficial spreadings are like that. So again, it's about awareness, um, but that continuum does exist in skin cancer, but mainly only for the superficial spreading and lentigo maligna melanoma subtypes. Um, and that's why some patients will be like, but I've had that thing for 20 years. How can you suddenly now tell me it's melanoma? So I've had melanoma for 20 years. And they're like, no, it was a regular nevi before. It just recently changed. And that's why the recently changed component is very important. Nodular melanomas are the second most common and don't present like that at all. So nodular melanomas are round, they're bulky, and they grow quickly. They grow vertically, they grow quickly, and they have the worst prognosis. They weren't there last week, they're suddenly there. You thought it was a little bug or a pimple and it just won't go away. Um, and it blisters and it bleeds and it hurts and sometimes they're pink and sometimes they're purple and sometimes they're black. So they're very hard to diagnose, but they're probably uh, the, you know, one of the worst, you know, they're definitely a worse prognosis. You then have the lentigo malignum melanoma those ones also somewhat are on a spectrum where they start as in situ disease and then can develop into a malignant melanoma. They're the ones that tend to be on the head and neck and on the face, especially those patients that are in the sun all the time, those sunbirds that go to Florida and elderly uh, patients. So that's the most common site, but they're not that frequent malignant melanoma. So it's the third most common. Finally, the last uh, most common type would be the acrolentiginous melanomas. These ones we think are not necessarily associated with sun exposure. We've noticed that acrolentiginous melanoma, which is base of, you know, it could be palms of the hands, soles of the feet, under the nail beds, um, tend to happen actually more in patients of Asian, Mediterranean, or African descent. Um, and we have noted that they more likely have a C-kit mutation in them, and so therefore may not be related to the sun. Um, those are the most aggressive uh, and with the worst prognosis. You then have a variety of other melanomas like desmoplastic melanoma that can look like a sarcoma. In fact, and many sarcoma surgeons might 
uh, take off a desmoplastic tumor thinking it's DFSP and finding out, oh, lo and behold, it was a melanoma. Uh, you have uh, amelanotic melanoma, which is like in the term, it uh, has no color. And then finally, we can have all of the rarer uveal melanoma in the, in the back of the eye or the retina. You can have, um, you know, mucosal melanoma uh, in the anal canal or even in the, the rectum or even uh, in the vagina. So uh, there are, you know, and those ones are, are quite aggressive. So lots of different kinds and there, the list goes on and on, but um, you know, those are probably the most common. So we've kind of gone over, I think, most of the history features that I think you'd be um, asking about in clinic. What are the important things that uh, we should be doing for a physical exam when we're seeing a patient, uh, evaluating a patient for melanoma? I mean, ultimately, I think that, um, to be perfectly honest, I make sure they have a dermatologist because the bottom line is I'm not a dermatologist and I'm not the best at diagnosing melanoma. I'm much better at treating it once it's been diagnosed. So when I get a consult, I do do a full skin check and I do look, but in general, I'm focusing on the site of where there was the primary tumor. And the goal is to look at the site. You want to look at the biopsy site. You want to see if there's residual disease or if there isn't any residual disease anymore. It just looks like a scar. You want to feel along that limb or on that back between the primary site towards the nodal basin. And you kind of feel deep into the subcutaneous tissues to make sure there's no intransit disease. And then you check the local nodal basin that would be related uh, to that area, whether it be the groin, the axilla, the neck, all four, depending on the location of the melanoma. So those are the things that I, I personally focus on. Can you define what in-transit disease versus satellite disease, uh, like what the differences are between those two? Yeah, there actually are no differences between the two. It's just a discussion of location. So there used to be a distinction in the AJCC where a satellite nodule was anything within two centimeters of the primary, um, whereas an in-transit lesion was anything more than two centimeters from the site of the primary towards the nodal basin. We still call them in-transits and satellites and because that's how we understand it. But ultimately, uh, AJCC has now gotten rid of that terminology and they're all kind of the same thing and they're called intralymphatic metastases. Because what they truly are, are little spots of tumor within the lymphatic channels. That, that, that is what in-transits are. Um, and so whether you call it a satellite, a microsatellite, an in-transit, there's a whole bunch of terms. The point is they are intralymphatic metastases and they all have the same prognosis regardless of their location. Um, and so the minute you have in-transit disease, you're definitely a stage three. I think one, one thing that uh, also gets people tripped up a little bit is sort of the staging workup. So, you know, if you have someone with a biopsy proven melanoma, you know, you've gotten a thickness, um, what, what kind of staging workup should you be doing? So the answer, uh, the quick answer is you shouldn't be doing any staging workup for most melanomas. So any early stage melanoma with no clinical evidence of nodal disease does not need imaging. 
Um, multiple studies have shown a very, very extremely low yield and a lot of false positives that you go down these rabbit trails uh, looking for something that's not there. Um, and so we actually do not image early stage node negative melanoma. There, one caveat to that are T4B melanomas. So anything that's greater than four millimeters and is ulcerated, in those patients, consideration of preoperative imaging can occur because you may find disease and you may find metastases at that stage. Um, in Australia, they did a very interesting study where they looked at, well, at which threshold of a T4B are you more likely to yield uh, something diagnostic? And they found that the cutoff was about seven millimeters. So anything greater than seven millimeters, I image pre-op. Anything less than that, I don't tend to because often it just delays a very important surgery to find no evidence of disease. Um, but I think in certain T4Bs, uh, depending on the story, the rapidity of progression, how it presented, if it's nodular or not, um, I may do uh, pre-op imaging. But for everyone else, if there's no clinical evidence of no disease, you do not require any imaging. Um, and in fact, you know, I advocate this quite a bit in the Choosing Wisely campaign because people do image and it's really a waste of uh, unfortunate money and time. When you, so the minute you are node positive, that changes everything. Um, so once you have a positive node, so if they come back with their sentinel node being positive or they present with palpable nodal disease at presentation, then all stage three melanomas should get imaging. Um, in earlier days before having adjuvant therapy, you could even argue that a 3A may not need imaging because even there the yield is low. But now in the era of adjuvant therapy, we need to make sure they're not metastatic before giving them a treatment. And therefore all stage threes are gonna get imaging. The ideal imaging, if you had whatever you wanted and it didn't matter what your province pays for, <laughs> then you would get a PET scan and an MRI brain as a baseline. If you cannot get a PET scan, then a CT chest abdopelvis is a good option. Any lab work that you would do as part of your um, workup? Nope. Okay. No, That's I awesome. really don't do it. That is I awesome. am like, I don't do any lab work ever. I don't do lab work. I mean, if you are, so there's a caveat to that. If you're a stage four patient, there is some evidence that LDH is very prognostic and it actually is included in the staging uh, system. So in all stage four patients, it's M1A, LDH normal or high, M1B, LDH normal or high. Because what we've seen is that in patients with a high LDH, they definitely have a worse prognosis than those with a low LDH. So that's really the only laboratory test that's really specific to melanoma um, and could be done in stage four patients. See, I remembered something from the Toronto Review course. So there you go. There you go. <laughs> Um, we've kind of been dancing around this, but uh, can you talk about what the TNM staging is for uh, melanoma? And uh, I think it's it's definitely worth going over this again, just because it seems to, to change quite often. I think there was a recent revision right before we 
voter exam as well. Yeah, so the eighth edition just recently came out, although recent is now, I think, almost two years ago now. But um, the eighth edition just came out. And the one that keeps changing is the thin melanoma. They can't seem to decide what's higher risk or not in the category of thin melanoma. But really what it is is um, a T1A is anything less than 0.8 millimeters without ulceration and a T1B is 0.8 or more or less than 0.8 but has ulceration. That's the biggest change because it, so in the sixth edition, what made you a T1B was ulceration. In the seventh edition, what made you a T1B was having at least one mitosis. And then the eighth edition, they got rid of the mitosis and they put back the ulceration. <laughs> um, so I think that it's because they don't know. And I think it's because we don't know. Um, all of these, you have to appreciate that the staging system is based on a massive retrospective review, albeit international, um, hopefully quite representative. I actually don't know if there's any Canadians in this uh, multi-international uh, staging system. But it is a retrospective review on, in the eighth edition was on 8,500 patients or so. And so what they do is they look at the outcome based on different criteria to determine staging. So a T1B currently is 0.8 millimeters to one millimeter or less than that if there is ulceration. The rest of the categories have not changed. So a T2A is between one and two millimeters, and then A means it's not ulcerated, and B means it is. Same thing, T3 is two to four, and T4 is greater than four. A means it's not ulcerated, and B means it is. When you go into the N category, um, the N category is the nodal category, and it's quite complex but there's N1 and 2 and N3 disease. Um, and one is usually only one node positive and two is two to three nodes positive and N3 is greater than three nodes positive or in transits and satellites and all the rest of it. And there's a huge combination because then it breaks down into N1A and N1B and N1C. And I mean, I don't remember it all by heart. I have it on an app on my phone so that I can stage patients. Um, so yeah. That's the end stage. I think the newest thing is that even if you have a microsatellite beside the primary melanoma, you are automatically in a stage N3C, even before doing a sentinel lymph node biopsy. And I think that is one of the biggest changes because you start to debate, do I even need to do a sentinel node biopsy if there's a satellite beside the primary? Uh, the, the word is still out on that. You still do the sentinel node, but it's, it's hard to know if it's valuable because they might give them adjuvant therapy anyway. And then finally, the M stage, the newest addition to the M stage is the M1D stage. So M1A is that the metastasis is subcutaneous, but not where your original melanoma used to be. So for example, if the melanoma was on the leg, but now someone shows up with a subcutaneous spot or a mass on their back, 
that's actually not an in-transit, that's a subcutaneous distant metastasis because it's nowhere near the nodal basin and therefore would be an M1A disease. Also M1A is slightly different because it can invade uh, muscle and bone. So that's a little bit different. Um, and then M1B is lung, M1C is viscera, and M1D, which is the new one, is brain. So CNS metastases, because we do know that that has a significant uh, poor prognosis in melanoma patients. And then they call them LDH normal or LDH high. So they've categorized that even further because as mentioned earlier, LDH high has a poor prognosis. And then finally, in the last addition, there is now a new stage 3D. So the 3Ds are anything that's a T4B with N2 disease and above. So that's really bad disease. Like if you're a stage 3D, you're, you're on the cusp of being a stage 4. That's a brilliant overview, and it, it's it's hard to keep track. And we'll we'll link some uh, resources uh, to the, AG, the the eighth edition in the show notes, so that people can look at that as well and, and listen, and then sort of review things um, as they go on. There's a couple of points that I wanted to just um, pick apart there. So the first one was just so just to clarify um, for a thin melanoma, um, what are the th the features that would make you consider doing a sentinel lymph node biopsy? So I think uh, that's a tricky question because we don't have any randomized trials and we don't have the best evidence. Currently, the recommendations are any T1B and above uh, should get a discussion at the very least of a sentinel biopsy. So a T1B should have a discussion. It's not strongly recommended, but at least a discussion. And that is because of what the HACC showed is that in patients with a 0.8 millimeter or above melanoma with no other factors, just the fact that it's a 0.8, had an eight to 12% chance of having a positive sentinel node. So depending on what your you know, threshold is to what's an important significant positivity rate, and in which some people think 5% or more is significant, you would therefore recommend sentinel node biopsy for all T1Bs because their risk is higher than 5%. So that's become actually less complicated than it used to be because now we just say, well, T1B and above gets a sentinel node biopsy, or at least you discuss it with the patient and let them choose. What gets a little bit trickier is when you get these really odd consults of a 0.5 with three mitoses or a 0.6 with microsatellites because then you're like well that's really not good and it shouldn't be that way and should i offer a sentinel node to that patient so one study that i do refer to a lot is a large meta-analysis that was done by aaron cordero and actually francis wright in toronto um, where they looked at you know, they did a meta-analysis of all the studies that included thin melanoma and their high-risk features and sentinel node positivity. And there was actually more patients than the AJCC. It was 10, 000, almost 11,000 patients. And what they showed, um, interestingly, was that anything 0.8 or greater without any other factor was an independent predictor of having about an 8% positivity rate. Ulcerated melanomas had a 5% uh, positivity rate. Microsatellites had a 
5% chance of having positive nodal disease and having at least one mitosis had all a 9% chance of having positive nodal disease. So I still kind of use that study to help me decide when they're less than 0.8 um, because we do know that those are still high risk features. Um, I tend to focus more on mitoses and microsatellites because I think those are an ulceration because those three seem to be the most significant. But again, it's just a discussion. I don't think you can strongly recommend it. The number needed to treat is very, very high, obviously, when it's only like a eight to 10% positivity rate. So sort of on a, on a related point with regards to the T staging, what are the margins that um, you need to have when you're doing their wide local excision uh, based on their T stage? Yeah. So that's one of the easiest things in melanoma. If it's a T1, it's one centimeter. So anything less than a millimeter, the margin is a centimeter. Anything that's one to two millimeters, the margin is one to two centimeters. And anything that's two millimeters or more is two centimeters. Ah, uh, we all breathe this uh, sigh of relief when when memorizing that. So that's that was <laughs> so great. One easy, that's the one easy thing. That was one easy thing. Um, so we wanted to just talk uh, a bit about therapeutic groin dissections. Um, you know, we had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Wright about uh, and going over all the um, MSLT1 and MSLT2 trials. So we won't belabor that point again. But let's talk a bit about. Um, therapeutic groin dissections. Uh, so we're, we're talking now about a patient that um, comes in with obvious palpable clinical ax or, uh, clinical nodal disease um, or, or for whatever reason uh, needs a therapeutic groin dissection. Can you talk a little bit about uh, a, a little bit about the relevant anatomy and, and how you kind of approach that operation? So, I think that um, there's so many schools of thought about, because there's two things you want to look at. Number one, um, how bulky is the node? Is it recurrent disease? Is it primary disease? Is this a missed sentinel node from the past? Like, they don't all present exactly the same. Um, and then once you have kind of figured that out, you then have to make the decision of, am I only doing the superficial groin or am I going to do a pelvic groin as well? I must admit, when you've got big bulky palpable disease, I don't bother with the like weird criteria that have never been proven about. It has to be at least three centimeters or greater, or there has to be three or more nodes, or it has to look suspicious. If you have a big bulky palpable node and you're growing, you're probably getting both. <laughs> it just makes my life a lot easier. And it's a lot easier to just have a standard that you follow. And as long as you follow it and you're comfortable with it, it goes quite well because doing the pelvic node dissection doesn't necessarily um, increase much in terms of morbidity. Uh, the main lymphedema is caused by the superficial groin dissection, not really by the pelvic dissection. So once someone has palpable nodal disease, I have to prove it. The reason that's important is melanoma is very immunogenic. And so it's a kind of cancer that can really cause enormous amounts of inflammation. And so lymph nodes can feel uh, a little bit bulkier sometimes, and it doesn't mean it's melanoma. And that's the same thing if you already had a primary melanoma and then you feel palpable disease at the same time, you should always biopsy that and actually prove it's melanoma um, before you tell someone you're gonna dissect them because there is morbidity associated with that. 
Um, and so I actually do an FNA in the clinic. It's pretty easy. Cytology comes up from pathology. We do our FNA, we send it off. You don't need a core, you don't need anything fancy. If it is melanoma, it'll tell you it's melanoma. And if it isn't, it'll tell you that it isn't. So let's say it is melanoma. And then I want to do a groin and pelvic node dissection potentially. My first step is a PET scan because a PET scan will show me if there is obvious pelvic disease and how much disease there is in the actual uh, groin. There is a scan associated to a PET scan. It's good enough quality that I could see my vein, my artery, and you know, kind of have a sense of you know how bulky is this node? Is it invading any structures? Does it look you know easily resectable? So assuming that all of that looks good, in some cases of the axilla, to be honest, if this was more an axillary node, if they're very, very bulky and you feel them kind of creeping onto the pec major, that's where I start worrying about the brachial plexus, in which case now I'm going to order an axial MRI to make sure that the brachial plexus is okay before going in and taking out these monstrous 20-centimeter nodes. Um, but in the groin, it usually always comes off. And, and I would argue that most melanomas, they kind of push structures aside. It's very rare that it invades um, structures. That's different when it's recurrence melanoma or someone who's had radiation and now there's a lymph node that came up. That's very different than just, hey, I have a palpable disease and I've never been operated or treated in that area. So I actually do uh, two incisions. I don't do the lazy S. I recently looked at my own data and uh, my infection rate was ridiculous when I was doing a, a lazy S. I just felt that everybody was infecting across the crease or dehissing or, you know, not everybody's fit and thin and whatever, like in our patient population. And so I've stopped using a lazy S. I don't, I don't do that. So I make an incision on the groin uh, overlying the femoral artery. Um, that's the best location. And then I go down and I'm always under the crease. Um, it means a little bit of tunneling at the top part of my groin dissection, but I'd much rather do that uh, with some nice retractors than cutting across the crease, which often didn't actually help me anyway, because you can't really cut any, like even cutting the inguinal ligament, I never found that it helped me anyway. So I do not do that. I never cut the inguinal ligament. So Make your incision. First step is raise flaps on either side. Get down onto the sartorius laterally. Get down onto the adductor medially. Make sure you're at the most medial border of both muscles. Open the fascia. And then find where the two muscles meet inferiorly in a V format, in a V shape. That's the bottom of your dissection. You don't need to go any lower than where the two muscles meet. Then the next step is you identify the saphenous vein, which is medial. I personally do not ligate the saphenous vein. I was taught by Francis Wright and I do not do it. Um, there is a belief that it could reduce the risk of lymphedema, makes the surgery a little bit more complex, a little bit longer, because now you have to dissect the saphenous vein throughout the whole um, procedure. But um, as long as it's not thrombosed and it's looking good, then you can do that. So once I've cleared my saphenous vein, I then identify the femoral artery and with a lower dissect right off the femoral artery, just like you would in vascular surgery and the femoral vein. 
And as you get up to the um, top, you then identify your inguinal ligament. You clear all the lymph nodes off the inguinal ligament and bring them downward. And then finally, what's left is, you know, the nodal tissue right at the saphenofemoral junction. And because I don't ligate the vein, I'm clearing off the saphenofemoral junction. There's always another little tributary vein that you will ligate and ultimately remove the specimen. And they have a nice uh, fully uh, resected groin dissection with all your anatomical landmarks that you need to clear while preserving a, a saphenous vein. Um, it's okay to ligate the saphenous vein. You just have to realize that you're ligating it twice. So the first time you ligate is at the bottom of those two muscles there. That's where you'll usually find it and move up. And then you'll ligate it again at the saphenofemoral junction. And then you can either take the saphenofemoral junction, I mean, you could clip it, you could tie it, you could sew it. There's a variety of ways uh, to close that off. It's really surgeon preference. In terms of the pelvic node dissection, I then do a separate incision. So two finger breaths above the inguinal ligament, I'll make an incision between the ASIS and the pubic tubercle, just like you would for hernia surgery, just slightly, um, slightly lower than hernia surgery. And ultimately you open scrapis fascia, then you get onto the external oblique, you open the external oblique, and then you have to cut a little bit of the internus but ultimately you're just spreading the muscle more importantly. So you spread and then you'll see a bulge. That bulge is your peritoneum. So with a sponge on a stick or a peanut, I push the peritoneum aside so that I can enter the retroperitoneal space. Kind of like in kidney transplant surgery or in hip surgery and ortho. So you're really entering the retroperitoneal space. Um, Depending on how bulky disease is, you might actually see the ureter as well. So you gotta make sure that that's out of the way, but you push everything aside, make sure your peritoneum is aside. The trickiest part here is finding a good retractor to really be able to stay in that space. I found that sometimes, believe it or not, a Balfour can help or work, or even a Lexus wound retractor has sometimes gotten me out of a tricky situation and Devers are also very useful and assistants are awesome like medical students who are great at doing this um but ultimately you're now on top of your iliac artery and vein so uh you palpate because you'll feel the pulse and that's what kind of directs you at least that's what directs me because i know that i'm in the right space and then you just clear all the nodal tissue off of the iliac artery and the iliac vein and you go all the way up to where the external and internal vessels meet so you don't need to go along the internal iliac you don't need to go along the internal like you just want to go clear all the external iliac nodes up until the bifurcation and then more medially you want to clear the obturator nodes you will feel them you will feel the obturator canal um, the node that just sits right above the inguinal ligament on that point, that's actually Cloquet's node, because Cloquet's node is the first node of the deep dissection. And you clear all of obturator nodes and you can usually can see actually the obturator nerve. So you know that you're in the right space um, and you take out all of that tissue. And uh, yeah, that's your deep dissection. Lost, lost you there for a sec. Oh my gosh, guys, I'm so sorry. No, no, no worries. That disconnected there for a second. So I actually, <laughs> 
missed you after you said that's a nice description of that surgery. <laughs> I know that's perfect. That's sorry perfect. about that. Was, that that was, was a perfect way. Phone. I'm just glad that didn't happen in the middle because that was just a uh, like a great beautiful description of of, of that operation. <laughs> so I'm glad that happened right at that moment. That's perfect. Uh, everything good? Yes, everything was fine. I think someone was trying to call my phone and uh, it kind of disconnected the Zoom. I see. <laughs> okay. okay. Gotcha. <laughs> Okay, well, we're we're I think we're we're getting close to the end here, so I just have a couple more kind of quick snappers here. Sure. Um, so uh, one one thing I wanted to specifically ask you about uh, postoperatively with their care is, do you leave drains? I do. Um, so I so I've I've changed quite a bit. So I used to do a lazy S. I used to close the skin with staples. Yes, believe it or not, and I would put two JPs in, and honestly. I didn't feel like it was, I mean, I was also new in practice, but I just had all these infections and it was really frustrating me. And I remember a wound care nurse coming up to me and saying, well, would you like me to put an incisional vac on that? And I go, what's that? And so she showed me and I was like, well, that sounds fantastic. Like maybe that'll work. Um, from there, I ended up doing this T-bridge incision or two incision technique. I only leave one JP now in the lower groin. I never put one in the pelvic part anymore because I've realized it just doesn't need it. And I put an incisional customizable Provena on top of the whole thing. So a Provena is a type of incisional vac that patients can go home with. Um, I actually have to advocate quite a bit for my hospital to pay for this, um, but it really has reduced our infection rate by 50%. And we actually presented that for, at an or as an oral presentation at uh, Society of Surgical Oncology this past August, virtually, of course, because everything is COVID uh, virtual. But um, I really, uh, I think it has made such a huge difference and my infection rate has gone way down. Um, I think the groin is a tricky spot. I think it's, it's not easy to treat once it falls apart. If someone is extremely thin, um, and I'm really concerned that the vessels are completely bare after I finished my groin dissection. I have done a sartorius flap and I'd say 30 to 40% of patients will sometimes get a sartorius flap depending on the situation or what it looked like or if there's radiation involved or like I know they're going to get post-op radiation. It's probably more in squamous cell carcinoma where they're really big and bulky and bad and or in Merkel cell carcinoma, where I really do feel the sartorius flap protects uh, the vessels and the tissues underneath because the radiation is really going to zap that skin. Um, so that's kind of my general approach. T-bridge incision, maybe a sartorius flap, and then one JP that I put only in the lower groin and the incisional Provena vac. <laughs> Uh, that the closure takes as long as the surgery. <laughs> <laughs> you, answer, you answered all my questions that I had. That's brilliant. Yeah, the Provena seems like something that, that a lot of people are using in a variety of settings, and it, it seems to really help. You know, obviously, adjuvant therapy in, in melanoma is a big, big topic, and we can't do it justice in, in a single podcast. But can you kind of uh, break it down in your mind how you think about adjuvant therapies, the types of adjuvant therapies, and, and sort of who gets them uh, postoperatively? <laughs> First thing I want to say is I love adjuvant therapy because it makes me have a job. <laughs> uh, 
because we were criticized for so many years uh, for doing sentinel node in melanoma because they're like, why are you even doing a sentinel node? There's nothing you can even offer the patient. That has now changed and that is really a surgeon's dream that you can maybe improve outcomes um, with not only surgery alone, at least that's what surgical oncologists thrive on. So um, I think adjuvant therapy is a super new thing. I think you have to take it with a grain of salt. So far, all trials have only shown an improvement in disease-free survival, not yet in overall survival. And I think it's just because we're only at three years follow-up and we just need a bit more time. I think the curves separate wide enough that I suspect there will be an overall survival advantage. There are two kinds of adjuvant therapy and, and different kinds of patients. So I'm sure everybody's aware that uh, melanoma now has a lot of molecular profiling and there are different mutations that can be found in melanoma. So a BRAF mutation is found in 50% of patients. It tends to be identified in younger patients under the age of 50. However, it can be identified in older patients and has now a targeted therapy. We know that giving BRAF plus MEK inhibitors have an effect in and improve overall survival in metastatic melanoma. And now what it's showing is that giving a BRAF and MEK inhibitor in the adjuvant setting can also improve disease-free survival and is already trending towards an overall survival benefit um, in the adjuvant setting. So you do need to be BRAF positive, of course, to get these treatments. And so if you're not BRAF positive, then you only have the other option, which is immunotherapy. Immunotherapy, um, how I like to explain it to the patients, are, is a treatment that stimulates your own body and your own immune system to create an army of T cells to fight off the cancer. And that's really what it does. Um, there are CTL4 inhibitors like ipilimumab, which we actually do not really give in the adjuvant setting. Um, there was one clinical trial where IPI was better than placebo, but unfortunately it was also very toxic. And so it's not um, really given in the adjuvant setting, but PD-1 inhibitors like nivolumab or pembrolizumab both showed benefit in the adjuvant setting and are given. So you have a BRAF positive patient, you have two options. You can give them BRAF plus MEK inhibitors. It's for one year. It's an oral medication and it's given daily. Its main side effect is fever. Unfortunately, the fever can be quite severe to the point where people come to the hospital and may be hospitalized for that fever. There are now algorithms and new strategies on how to mitigate fever uh, in patients taking BRAF inhibitors. Um, but it is, it's a significant uh, complication. That being said, the grade four or five toxicities is only 5%. And the nice thing about BRAF inhibitors is the minute you stop it, uh, the toxicity gets reversed. So very reverse reversible toxicities. Ironically, another toxicity of BRAF inhibitors is getting brand new thin melanomas. <laughs> so you do need a dermatologist and squamous cell carcinomas and other little skin cancers. So you do need a dermatologist checking your skin if you're on BRAF inhibitors. And it can have effects on heart and eyes. And so they also do see ophthalmologists on a regular basis. In terms, and the BRAF studies did show benefit in all stage threes. So 3A, B, and C. It did not include in transit disease, but it did include stage 3A, B, and C. 
but you had to have at least a one millimeter uh, deposit in your sentinel node. If it was less than that, then you're not likely going to get adjuvant therapy. And some people argue that maybe the three A's because they have such a good outcome, don't need adjuvant therapy and observation alone is okay. But the minute you're a 3B or 3C, you're probably gonna get um, recommendation, strong, stronger recommendations for adjuvant therapy. If you are BRAF positive, you can still get immunotherapy. So you kind of have to choose between BRAF and immunotherapy. Immunotherapy is an IV therapy. If it's Nevo, you're getting it once every two weeks. If it's Pembro, you're getting it once every three weeks. Um, it has a great toxicity profile. Once again, four to five percent grade three, four toxicity. Um, and actually a little bit easier tolerated by patients than BRAF inhibitors. I guess the issue with immune therapy is that some of the side effects are basically autoimmune side effects. So colitis, hypophysitis, you know, arthritis. The issue is the endocrine, the endocrine type toxicities. The endocrine type toxicities like thyroiditis and hypothyroidism and diabetes and uh, hypophysitis, if you do get them, it can be permanent and will likely be permanent. So you really have, you know, it's there's the, there's a huge trade-off there. So, you know, especially in the adjuvant setting, you're not you're not surely going to die of your melanoma. We're just trying to mitigate the risk. So you want a toxicity profile that's that's reasonable, you know. But some patients have become diabetics and hypothyroids, and now they have to live on, you know, all that medication for the rest of their life because that toxicity is not reversible. The colitis and the other types of toxicities tend to be reversible with treatment, with steroids and all the rest of it. But you know. There, so there is that option. If you're BRAF negative, of course, there is no option. And then you just go to immunotherapy. I think how they choose is based on comorbidity, age. If you already have an autoimmune disease, they're not going to be keen to give immunotherapy. So they're going to lean towards BRAF MEK inhibitors. I have to say during COVID, they've been leaning way more towards BRAF MEK inhibitors because they're oral. And so you don't have patients needing to come for IV therapy to the hospital. So it's definitely being used more often. Another very interesting uh, concept is that when these clinical trials were done, everyone had a completion node dissection. So they'd have their sentinel node. If it was positive, they would get a completion node dissection. You'd have full staging, and then you would decide about um, immunotherapy and the, or, or BRAF therapy. The immunotherapy trials, so the B, the PEMBRO trial included three A, B, and C. The NEVO trial, however, was slightly higher risk patients, so it was three B and above, and included resected oligometastatic stage four patients. Um, but I guess you know it, it is kind of tricky to know what to give a BRAF positive patient because they can have both. <laughs> really, they get to choose. Um, but if you have an autoimmune disease, they're probably going to not give you the, the immunotherapy because you might just reactivate that or stimulate that a bit too much. Um, there is a belief that maybe the sustainability of response is higher with immunotherapy. Um, and so sometimes that's why they lean towards 
towards that, but there's no evidence of that right now. In the metastatic setting, we see that immunotherapy has a more sustainable response than BRAFMIC inhibitors, um, unless you have very minimal disease. So BRAF and MEC have shown sustainable response if you have less than three sites of metastatic spots and a normal LDH. There's that LDH again. It really is a, a, a key factor in deciding prognosis. The other interesting thing that they found is because we don't dissect anymore, because the MSLT2 trial came out and now we don't dissect anymore. <laughs> so people are kind of getting adjuvant therapy based on the sentinel node alone. So it's not full staging, but that's fine because in general, as long as you have one node positive, you should, you know, you can get adjuvant therapy. But what they've noticed is that there's now uh, local recurrences in the nodal basin <laughs> that are happening and that tends to happen more often on patients getting immunotherapy in the adjuvant setting than patients on BRAF MEK inhibitors in the adjuvant setting. And you know it's it's interesting. We don't we don't really know why. One of the things that I have noticed anecdotally, like I don't have much evidence, but anecdotally, patients on immunotherapy that are responding and doing really, really well, interestingly will respond in the lung and the liver and everything is disappearing. And the only thing that won't go away is the damn lymph node in the groin or the silly in transit disease on the person's uh, back. Or So it seems as though maybe immunotherapy doesn't seem to penetrate the lymphatic system as well as it penetrates the bloodstream. And so often I'm still operating on these patients. <laughs> because everything will have gone away except for their nodal disease. And so they'll be like, but I want them to be NED. So can you go take out the nodal disease? <laughs> so you're still operating on nodes, even though we try to stop operating on nodes, we can't because they're always there. <laughs> and so um, it is a very interesting phenomenon. I don't see that as much with BRAF and MEK patients. Those tend to melt, like they tend to go away. Um, so there might be, you know, there might be a little mechanism there that we're not fully, fully understanding. Um, but anyway, I think I talked a lot, but that's the, that's the general gist of uh, adjuvant therapy. It's a, a great new thing that we can offer patients. And I think it's good that, you know, the other thing we don't know is because in the metastatic setting, these drugs are so effective do you really need to give it now? <laughs> Be because ultimately if, you know, and that's what I tell patients, I say that if after the discussion about adjuvant therapy, they don't feel keen, it's not the end of the world. And, and this is why it's different. I think it's really different in most cancers. Let's take away colorectal cancer because that's different, but let's say in breast cancer, in breast cancer, adjuvant therapy is pretty important because if you metastasize, there's nothing really I can do. I'm going to give you some palliative chemo, but I'm not going to cure you, right? Or I'm going to give you some palliative hormone therapy, but I'm not going to cure you. In melanoma, if you become metastatic and I give you immunotherapy and you're the 50% that responds, you can live like that for 10 years. And I'm not calling it a cure, but man, it's pretty close. <laughs> so, you know, if you don't take it in the adjuvant setting, it's not the end of the world 
because maybe it'll work in the metastatic setting. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, and this is just me theorizing again, maybe for BRF MEC, when volume disease is very high, like in the metastatic setting, it'll work for a while, but resistance will develop and then people recur. But, you know, in the adjuvant setting where disease volume is low, maybe that's where BRF MEC is gonna work best. In immunotherapy, when you think about it, you need to have the antigen presented for the T cell to recognize it. Post-surgery, there can't be that many antigens <laughs> around. Like what's being presented to the T cell? The theoretical cell in the bloodstream, I guess. Um, but it's not a lot of volume of disease. And so maybe for immunotherapy, having more disease, like in the metastatic setting, makes more sense and it might be more effective. So maybe it's that BRAF-MEC is better in the adjuvant setting and immunotherapy is better in the metastatic setting. But who knows? This is just me after seeing a lot of patients. Very anecdotal. Some evidence about this, some discussion about this. But I do think it's fascinating, interesting, and very curious to see what the next step is to come in adjuvant therapy because there's a lot more being evaluated. It really is a, such a fascinating time to be a surgeon in so many different areas. And I think melanoma is like emblematic of that. You know, uh, like you said, you, it, it's sort of like uh, the surgical role in, in the treating the disease is it's not going away. It's just finding different things that where the surgeon still needs to be involved and and, and really oh. having an understanding of all the, the whole treatment spectrum and and all the different therapies is so important now, I think, uh, as a surgical oncologist. I think that's where the, the extra training that you and other surgical oncologists have done is so important. Yeah, no, I think it's great because, I mean, honestly, like I probably every second day will get a text from one of my medical oncology colleagues, have time to chat? Because they're just so keen to, because their drugs are finally effective, often it requires still a combination and I have a lot of metastatic patients, right? Because they're like, okay, this is what we're going to do. He's responding to Pembro, but he has these in transits and I can't get rid of them. So you're going to IL-2 while I give Pembro and we're going to get rid of this. And so it, it, it is a lot of collaboration and um, it's working quite well. We have some patients that maybe will do a neoadjuvant approach because let's say they're oligometastatic. They have two sites of disease or two sites and an in-transit. So technically fully resectable, but you could, if they're BRAF positive, you can give them some BRAF therapy, shrink everything down, and then the surgeon takes it all out, and then they watch and wait. So there's a lot of different things like that that have been happening recently, or, or like the example that I gave before, everything's melting away except for the small bowel metastasis. Can you go and take out the small bowel? Well, sure, I'll go take out that, just that one spot because everything else is going away except for that one spot. And so those kinds of scenarios are happening more and more. And uh, it's making my job like really fun <laughs> and interesting and uh, challenging. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it's definitely a very different approach than just doing your standard wide local sentinel node uh, biopsy surgery you know sort of in closing i wanted to highlight a talk that you gave for the CAGS meet week talking about disparities in outcomes for melanoma patients it was a fascinating talk i was hoping you could briefly 
give us a synopsis of what you talked about and uh, uh, and sort of what you found? So we looked at um, our Lynn, so really just Eastern Ontario. So everybody that drains to our um, Eastern Ontario and the Ottawa Hospital. And we tried to see if socioeconomic status had an effect on overall survival, um, diagnosis of disease, uh, the receipt of adjuvant therapy, and the, um, you know, how often people are on clinical trials, and if SES had an impact on that. Ultimately, most studies on socioeconomic status for melanoma have shown similar trends. And I actually, whether it was American, European, and now Canadian, it doesn't seem to actually be very different, even though we have a universal healthcare system, which I thought was very interesting. So patients of lower SES are, have a lower incidence of melanoma. And there is some theorizing that that's maybe because they just don't go to sunny destinations that often because they don't have the money to go to sunny destinations that often. Um, but when they are diagnosed with melanoma, they tend to be diagnosed at a later stage um, and they tend to have a worse overall survival, likely because they're diagnosed at a later stage. Because um, what we saw was that it's not that they're not getting the same treatment. So interestingly, even if they're lower SES, they're somehow still getting offered adjuvant therapy still getting offered clinical trials and still accepting adjuvant therapy. So I don't think it's because they're not accessing the care. So that that's, I thought was a really interesting point that we saw. Um, they often actually got more BRAF and MEK inhibitors, uh, which is oral medication, because the one thing we did see are the people that, that are lower SCS are the ones that live the furthest away from the cancer center. And they lived on average, I think it was like 72 kilometers away or something like that, whereas the highest SES subgroup lived 20 kilometers away from the cancer center. And so distance seemed to keep coming back, even in our multivariable analysis, that living far away seems to have an impact on these patients. And so they also had a higher stage, just like it's been seen in other research, and they also present with more advanced disease. And so, but once they're diagnosed, it looked like they were actually quite comparative to their higher SES cohorts. So we're not doing so badly in our region in the sense that lower SES patients are getting adjuvant therapy, they are being offered clinical trials and they're actually accepting it and they're taking it, but they still have a worse overall survival, most likely because they just have worse tumors. They're just being diagnosed later. And so I think what it might be is that maybe they need more access to family care practitioners or dermatologists or, you know, not more, or even just self-awareness, like we were talking before, awareness about risk factors. Um, because especially in the area of Eastern Ontario, a lot of those uh, patients are farmers. <laughs> There's a lot of farmers in Ottawa. There's a lot of farmers in our region. And they probably live outside in the sun without a, a shirt on all the time, <laughs> right? So it's really just giving them the awareness that maybe that's not the best practice. I know it can get hot, but like maybe there's other ways to, <laughs> to get around that. Um, but, you know, it really is that they're just being diagnosed later 
than the higher SES patients. And so what can we do to try to expedite their diagnosis, whether it's education and awareness, whether it's more access to primary care practitioners and dermatologists so that they can go see someone in a reasonable amount of time when they see something on their skin that's that's a a little bit worrisome instead of just kind of waiting for it to grow and then saying, oh God, that's really bad. Now I better show up to the doctor's office. Um, so I think that was a very interesting highlight of our study where we went a step further to look at treatment and the treatment differences were actually not that different. In closing, one of the questions we always ask all our guests is if you could go back and give yourself advice as a trainee, especially in the light of such a, a varied and changing practice like you have, what would that advice be? I think, you know, stick to what you really love to do. And I know that that's hard in our environment right now with the limited number of jobs. But I do think you have to be somewhat passionate about the topic that you do. I remember when I first interviewed in surgical oncology um, as a resident and they asked me, well, what do you like doing? And I was like, well, I want to do melanoma, sarcoma, and gastric cancer. And they kind of said, what are you crazy? Like those are the three most rare uh, <laughs> cancers in Canada. There's, there's no such a job. And uh, I said, well, there could be a job. And, and they said, well, you know, like sarcoma and, you know, really? <laughs> I was just like, well, that's what I love to do. Um, and I think that if you, you know, if you convince someone, I mean, someone actually said, how is melanoma and sarcoma similar? That's not even similar. And I said, sure it is. It's soft tissue tumors that sit on major vessels and nerves. And I have to dissect the major vessel and nerve from the tumor. Whether that's in the armpit, the groin, or the belly, in my mind, that's very similar. <laughs> and they, uh, they looked at me and they said, wow, this girl's practiced that answer. Um, but <laughs> I think that, you know, if you do have a passion and you can show that you really can bring something along and you really have a vision of what you want to do, I think that's where people get engaged. You just share your vision. We all have one. We all know what we want. We all know what we see ourselves doing or what we want to be doing. But if you share that vision, you're going to find someone who's going to be like, Ooh, I like that vision. I'm going to go down her path. <laughs> so I think, you know, obviously study obviously you know be good people i think we all are in general surgery we're like the nicest doctors in the hospital to be honest but um yeah that's what i would i would suggest like try to picture you know dr Auer always says she's one of my colleagues and you know has become slowly a mentor for me what is your why why do you do what you do find the why if you can find the why you will really move towards that in your whole career and it really shapes what you do and why you do it and so finding your why whether it's for research whether it's for your clinical work whether it's for your personal life like i really think it's a great a great concept find your why because once you find that you kind of know where to go next You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. 
We'd love to hear your comments and feedback. So feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.